My first two years of employment were rocky ones. I was 20 years old and far from a model employee. Hour and a half lunch hours, extended breaks, allergic reactions to overtime, never do for others what they can do for themselves. I mean, these are not the traits that endear you to a boss and to your coworkers. I didn't realize it until later, but I had very few friends in the warehouse. Actually, my irresponsibility at work was a symptom of my rebellion at heart. I was prideful and haughty. And though I might have told you that I was a Christian, I had never really surrendered my life to Jesus. My faith was a sham. But all that changed one Friday night. I was on my way home when I pulled off the road. I was broken and ashamed and desperately needing Jesus. And I knelt down at a concrete picnic table and I gave what was left of my life to Jesus. And I got to tell you, from that moment on, I was new. My heart changed. My desires changed. How I saw myself changed. How I viewed my job changed. And, I went, and when I went back to work on that Monday, I expected all of my co-workers to join in celebrating the new work that God had done in my life. <laughs> but that's not what happened. When I tried to speak up for Jesus and tell the guys what a difference he'd made in my life, they laughed at me. Man, you're lazy and irresponsible. And because you don't pull your weight around here, it's harder on all of us. And now you're telling us how we should live our lives? Oh, my. My attempt to witness set off a firestorm of anger. I mean, these were warehouse guys, not the most tactful communicators, and they were brutal. To them, I was a hypocrite. And I can remember walking away realizing that they were right. And so... I shut up. <laughs> For the next year or so, I just shut up and I worked my buns off. I was back early for lunch. I skipped my breaks if necessary. I never begrudged working to, over to get the job done. I mean, I made a 180 degree reversal. I've been over backwards to be a good employee and to serve my coworkers. Understand, I was still zealous to tell people about Jesus. But I had a more immediate goal, and that was to earn their respect. I realized that oftentimes, before you can convey the gospel, you have to first earn the right to be heard. In 1899, a Missouri congressman created a nickname for his state. William Vandiver, he, he said in a speech, I come from a state that raises corn and cotton and cockleburs and Democrats, and frothy eloquence neither convinces nor satisfies me. I am from Missouri. You've got to show me. And from that moment on, Missouri has been known as the show-me state. But I've discovered the same can be said for people everywhere. Before some people will listen to what you say, they first want to look at how you live. The proof is in the pudding, not in your frothy eloquence. To me, this is the great need among Christians today. 
Certainly, we need to trumpet the gospel truth. But first, we need to build a platform of integrity from which we can speak convincingly the love and truth of Jesus Christ. And let me add, this kind of witness, it works. Before I left my job, both my bosses and my peers saw and even commented on the changes in my life. They came up and asked me why. How fun it was to tell them that Jesus had made all the difference. I eventually did get to share the gospel at work. But first, I earned the right. As a Christian, you also have the gospel. It is the power of God to salvation. It can turn your friends from darkness to light, from bondage to freedom. But are the folks around you listening? And why should they? I mean, from all outward appearances, your life is no better off than the next guy or gal. As we mentioned, the gospel is always true, whoever might be preaching it. But a godly messenger brings credibility to the message. If we really want to reach our friends and family and co-workers with the love and truth of Jesus, our first step is to earn a hearing and create a platform. This is the message in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul writes to the believers and explains what he had done to earn the right to bring them the gospel. Apparently, there were folks in Thessalonica casting a cloud of doubt over Paul's ministry. The criticisms probably came from the jealous Jews who had stirred up the riot we read about in Acts 17 and forced Paul out of town. Oh, Paul was used to being a target for lies and slander. In fact, Stuart Briscoe once described the traits of a good pastor. He said, he has the mind of a scholar, the heart of a child, and the height of a rhinoceros. I can identify with that. Paul was a pastor who had thick skin. It was a good thing. He was skilled in shaking off the mudslinging and moving on. But what concerned him here about the falsehoods swirling in Thessalonica were their potential effect on the church. This was a young church. Paul had been among them just a short time, maybe just as little as, a, as three weeks. The Thessalonians had seen Paul's ministry in action but few knew the man personally. And for the gospel's sake, he wants to put to rest their doubts by recalling his example. He wants to remind them of how he conducted himself among them. Let me sum up for you our text this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1-12. through 12, And then we'll go through it. But here's what Paul does. He describes the means by which he came. He was bold. He was real. He assures them his motive was to please God and not men. His methods were void of flattery, greed, fame, and coercion. And his model for ministry was twofold. He was like a nursing mom, and he was like a faithful dad. Hey, we're going to learn this morning how to earn the right to be heard. Paul begins his defense in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. And this is always the question whenever we make a spiritual investment in another person. Did I do any good? Ever ask that question? You know, Jesus compares our job to a farmer who goes out into the fields to sow seed. 
The word of God is the seed. And the hearts of men are the ground. But imagine a farmer throwing out invisible seed on invisible ground, adding invisible water, hoping for invisible sprouts that will yield invisible fruit. No wonder there's a question mark above his efforts. You see, spiritual cultivation and investing in the lives of people can't always be measured with tangible results. I'll never forget the lady who came to church one Sunday. (laughs) If looks could kill, I was dead. I mean, she kept a stiff upper lip the whole morning. This scowl was plastered on her face. Oh, I thought, surely my jokes could crack a smile. For understand, I am renowned for my side-splitting humor. But this lady somehow resisted even my jokes. It was like she was carved into Mount Rushmore. Talk about stone-faced. And when I mumbled amen that morning, I figured I could have just as easily shouted in vain. I was so surprised, though, later that day when I got a phone call. It was from her sister to tell me that they had prayed together that afternoon and she had received Jesus into her life. Amazing. And it taught me a very valuable lesson. Never ever underestimate the power of God's Word. It penetrates beneath the face. It bores its way all the way down to the heart. You see, the gospel is a spiritual bunker buster. It's the heavy artillery that God launches to break up buried shelters and to slice through hardened targets. You know, for a decade we thought, oh, Osama bin Laden was hiding deep within the Torabora Mountains there in eastern Afghanistan. And to get him, we developed those bunker buster missiles. They could cut deep into the mountainside. They could blow up these underground shelters. But you know, God was way ahead of the curve. For spiritually speaking, that's what the gospel has been doing for the last 2,000 years. This is why God instructed Pastor Jeremiah, do not be afraid of their faces. For you can't always tell on a person's face what God is doing in their heart. Anytime we share the word of God or show the love of God, anytime we set the gospel in motion, we can rest assured that it won't be in vain. I love Isaiah 55, verse 11. Here here it is in a more contemporary translation. God tells us, that's how it is with my words. They don't return to me without doing everything I send them to do. Well, Paul's visit to Thessalonica had not been in vain. And he recalls the day he limped into town, verse 2. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God, to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. Now Paul's trip through Macedonia had been a wild ride. In Philippi, he'd been arrested and beaten and thrown into jail. He gets to Thessalonica happy, but he's on a gurney. I mean, he's sore from head to toe. Thessalonica was a hundred miles away, and Paul was hoping that these folks might be a little friendlier. But again, persecution raised its ugly head. Jealous Jews and a frenzied mob and panicked officials forced Paul to skip town in the dark of night. The gospel was being spread, but it was amidst much conflict. Yet how did Paul respond to the opposition? Well, one word, 
boldness. Notice what he says. We were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel. Rather than be silenced or be intimidated, the hostilities that Paul experienced only made him bolder. You know, this was the characteristic of the early church in the book of Acts. Persecuting the church was like pouring water on a grease fire. The church just flamed up and grew hotter. The tougher life got, the more the believers clung to Jesus and the bolder they became in their proclamation. You know, I think this is what happens when persecution strips things away from us and life becomes really all about Jesus. Suddenly, the Christian becomes bolder. Of course, this is how Paul always lived. He lived his life out on the edge. He counted everything lost for Jesus' sake. And who doesn't admire this kind of fearlessness and courage? You see, Paul's willingness to convey the gospel, despite the serious suffering he incurred in both cities, earned him the opportunity to be heard. And you know, when you suffer for Jesus' sake, when you go through tough times, and yet you do so boldly, in love with Him, passionate for Jesus, you also win a hearing in the ears of those around you. You know, today we see celebrity preachers and evangelists there crisscrossing the nation, filling stadiums and arenas. Their touring has become a lucrative business. There's the travel and the red carpet treatment and the lavish honorariums. But I wonder if the whirlwind tours wouldn't slow down a bit if in every city they visited they were met with a riot or a good beating or, or maybe a false imprisonment or two. Boy, the Thessalonians could be sure that Paul wasn't in it for the wrong reasons. His ministry had cost him lacerations and broken ribs. Hey, people have to listen to us when we live boldly in the midst of conflict. Paul adds in verse 3, For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. Paul wasn't a deceiver. He wasn't some manipulator. He was a straight shooter. In a word, Paul was authentic. He was real. Reminds me of the conversation between the motorist and the mechanic. Motorist. What will you charge me to repair my car? Mechanic. What's wrong with your car? Motorist. I don't know. Mechanic. $159.95. <laughs> hey. When the guy knows the price before he knows the problem, beware, be suspicious. And yet there was nothing dishonest or deceitful or disingenuous about Paul's approach to the Thessalonians or his presentation of the gospel. You know, I wish I could say the same for every church today, but sadly I can't. Too many churches try to water down the gospel to appeal to the latest cultural trends. They share only God's promises while sheltering people from the Bible's harder demands. Are people being told the whole story? You know, with faith comes repentance. As we learned last week, coming to Jesus involves turning from your idols. Paul was up front about God's requirements. You know, I hate it whenever I hear an eager evangelist lure people into believing that becoming a Christian is going to solve all of their problems. Oh boy, they're selling a false bill of goods. In fact, 
If you cheat on your income tax or if you lie to your wife, becoming a Christian at first is just going to make your life a lot harder. I've been to churches where everyone walks around with this phony plastic grin on their face. As if it's a sin to get discouraged or to ever get down. Hey, people pretend to be the ideal when they lack the grace to be real. Jesus never, he never promised to eliminate all our problems and all our stresses. He does, though, promise to join us in bearing them and empower us through them. Well, it was because of his genuineness that Paul carried God's good housekeeping seal of approval. Verse 4 tells us, But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. Notice Paul gets high marks, straight A's as I see it. Notice, he was approved by God. He was entrusted with the gospel. That's big stuff. The implication, though, is this isn't the case for everyone. There are people today running around speaking for God who shouldn't be. They're not authorized. They're not approved. They're illegal. God can't trust them with the truth. And you see, here's what earns God's endorsement. As Paul put it, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God. You see, to gain God's approval, God's approval to speak for Him, to be entrusted with His gospel, you can't be a man-pleaser. You can't be. Recently, Sports Illustrated did an article on home field advantage. You know, you know about this, home field advantage. It's not a myth. It's actually been proven. The home team is more likely to win the game. This article examined all team sports, from the NFL to Brazilian soccer to Japanese baseball. And none of the factors you might have assumed accounted for the phenomena. Not the rigors of travel to get to the, state, to, the, to the visiting stadium. Not the familiarity of the surroundings. Not even the players' reaction to the jeers and cheers of the crowd. The only cause for home field advantage, but it was a real one, the only cause was the referee's bias. It seems that the refs or the umps feel the pressure of the crowd. I mean, nobody likes to get booed. And they respond often unconsciously by trying to please the people who are watching them. When the game is on the line, they end up calling more fouls or more penalties, or more strikes for the home team. Understand, an umpire is a trained professional. I mean, this man trains and prides himself on objectivity, but the desire to please people can be so strong that it takes over under pressure. This is why we have to be careful when we represent God, when we share His Word. Don't you soft-soak a truth. Speak the truth in love, but speak the truth. No one, including myself, likes to handle controversial issues and draw unpopular conclusions. Yet rubbing people the wrong way is a common occurrence if you dare to speak God's word. Hey, we live in a fallen world. That's why truth will challenge us to change. 
And change is never pleasant, not at first. The bottom line for us is who do we intend to please? Man or God? In the early 1990s, John Sununu served as the White House Chief of Staff under the first President Bush. One day a reporter asked Sununu if his job was a difficult one. John Sununu's reply was quick and terse. He said, nope. The reporter thought the chief of staff had misunderstood the question. But the former governor, he elaborated, no, my job is an easy one. And then Sununu explained, he said, I have only one constituent. And how true his answer was. You see, the White House chief of staff's only job is to please the president. And this is how every Christian should think about their interactions in life. We have only one constituent to serve, only one person to please, the God who made us and saved us. Hey, this is how I think. If I didn't, I would never find the courage and nerve to do and say what's required of a faithful pastor. I love this quote from comedian Bill Cosby. He says, I don't know the secret of success, but the key to failure is trying to please everybody. It's true. The person who tries to please everybody ends up pleasing nobody. It's like radio stations. Imagine a radio station that played all genres of music. Played it all. You're sitting there and you're listening to a polka song by Jimmy Dorsey. Which gets followed by some Motley Crue heavy metal. Next up, a rap by Jay-Z. Then a Carrie Underwood country. Then Frank Sinatra. Then Freebird. Then Beethoven's Fifth Century. Who would listen to that? I mean, cater to everybody and you please nobody. This is why we earn the right to be heard when we obey only God and not the opinions of men. Human opinion is fickle, and fallible, and fleeting. And notice too Paul's methods. There was no buttering up, no taking advantage, no playing to the crowd, no pushing people around. Verse 5 tells us, For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know. Mark Twain wrote a famous short story he entitled, The Celebrated Jumping Frog of Calaveras County. But the author was very clever. He dedicated the publication to a man named John Smith. In his credits, Twain wrote, John Smith, who I have known in diverse and sundry places, and whose many and manifold virtues did always command my esteem. Actually, Mark Twain didn't have a single John Smith in mind with that dedication. He just knew that John and Smith were the two most popular names in the English language. Twain figured that if all the John Smiths in the world bought his publication so that they could read the dedication, that alone would make it a bestseller. He appealed to the human ego and wrote the flattering dedication. Well, flattery may sell a short story, but it's no help in communicating the gospel. In fact, the gospel isn't very flattering at all, is it? It starts out with a stark confession. I have sinned. No one is good enough for God. We're all saved by His grace. 
You see, the gospel starts out with a slap in the face to your pride. It builds us up by first tearing us down. Try to make that palatable and tasty, and you'll dilute its power. Sharing the gospel calls for straight shooting, not smooth talking. Well, Paul's presentation had nothing to do with flattery. Verse 5 adds, nor did he wear a cloak of covetousness. God is witness. In other words, Paul wasn't after anybody's money. You, know, you see some of today's evangelists with a hand pressing people's forehead and another hand trying to pick their pocket in the back. Paul is thinking about a man here who covers up his greediness with this facade of righteousness. There are pastors today who cater to the big tithers. They preach. Their preaching is designed to loosen the people's purse strings and manipulate the congregation into giving more. Once a, a rabbi went to get his hair cut. Afterwards, he tried to pay. And that's when the barber told him, said, Rabbi, no worries. I never charge clergy. Well, the next day, the, the barber found a, a nice loaf of Jewish rye bread sitting on his front step. Well, later, a Catholic priest came in for a cut. Afterwards, the, the, barber, the barber repeated. He said, hey, he says, no worries. I, I never charge clergy. So the next morning, a, a nice bottle of wine was sitting on the steps of his store. Well, the following day, a Baptist preacher came in for a haircut. Well, again, the barber stated his policy. He said, preacher, no worries. I never charge a clergy. The next morning, there were 15 Baptist preachers on his front door. <laughs> uh, you know, whenever we serve for Jesus' sake, there should be no ulterior motive. We should not be looking to gain anything for ourselves. You know, we lose the right to be heard when people sense that they're just a means to an end. When, when we try to win people to Jesus to ease our guilt or put a notch on our belt or to fulfill our quota, people sniff out that kind of hypocrisy. I'll never forget the Baptist preacher of my childhood church who offered an autographed Braves baseball. An autographed Braves baseball to the person who brought the most people to the revival meeting that night. I mean, shame on him for using such a carnal, worldly gimmick to motivate people to serve the Lord. Shame on him. And shame on the person who won that baseball. Uh, that would be me. I am so embarrassed about it now. I mean, I didn't invite anybody before that night, and I didn't care to invite anybody after that night. But I had my whole row filled on the high attendance night, the night he was giving away that baseball. I cared more about that silly baseball than I did the glory of God or the souls of my friends. Why wasn't my love for Jesus and my love for people enough to motivate me? Trying to win that stupid baseball just revealed my worldliness. You see, whenever a church or a Christian serves God for their own gain, astute people turn a deaf ear to that witness. We lose the right to be heard. And the same is true with fame. Paul says in verse 6, Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others. Paul's motive was pure. You know, there's a fine line 
between serving God and promoting me. Have you ever done stuff for God so that you could brag about it later? Oh my. I'm afraid if the truth were known, we're all guilty. We all want to appear more spiritual than we really are. Oh, how we need to rid our hearts of vain glory. Paul adds in verse 6, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. I mean, Paul was a Jerusalem apostle. He was a big deal. He was a spiritual heavyweight. And he could have pulled out his apostle card and used it to get special privileges. But you see, Paul knew you earn a hearing by giving up your rights, not by demanding them. Nobody listens to a bully. You know, the leader who pushes folks around loses his influence. You resent a bully, you respect a servant. And that's especially true of a spiritual bully. But Paul won a hearing with these people through his humility and his sacrifice and his becoming a servant to the people around him. Paul didn't make these demands. Instead, he tells us in verse 7, We were gentle among you. Just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. Understand, Paul endured some harsh treatment. He was beaten with rods and pummeled with rocks and stretched out on the racks and was shipwrecked among the sharks. And you know what? Hard times usually make for hard men, but not Paul. There was a gentleness about him. He treated people as a nursing mother treats her child. There was just this gentleness, this tenderness about Paul. You know, I've met church leaders who had soft skin and hard hearts. Paul had tough skin, but he kept a soft heart. Paul treated the new believers like a nursing mom cherishes her kids. And he explains it. He gives us a picture of it, verse 8. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. And isn't this what a mother does for her children? A mother doesn't just take care of her kids' necessities in mechanical fashion. She's affectionate. She longs for her child. She doesn't just give them food and you know, and, and shelter in an in obligatory way. Oh, no, she gives of her own heart, of her own self to the child. You know, a mother doesn't just wipe a nose. She doesn't just change a diaper. <laughs> she doesn't just plop herself out so her child can feed. I've seen, I've seen a mother breastfeed her child. I've seen it four times with my wife and her children. And it has always struck me as a sacred act. To me, a mother nursing her child is shrouded in God's glory. It's always struck me as something special and something mystical and something wonderful and something beautiful. It is certainly so tender. Trust me, more is given and received than mere milk. 
the passing of affection, a deep, deep exchange of life always occurs when a mother nurses her child. And you see, Paul compares this to his love for the Thessalonians. Hey, trust me, you show people that kind of love and you'll earn their respect. Paul says in verse 9, For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preach to you the gospel of God. I mean, at least Paul could have expected the Thessalonians to cough up some room and board. But Paul had to supplement his pastor job with making tents. He worked while everybody else took siesta. I mean, Paul was willing to moonlight so he could spread the light. Frederick Douglass was born into slavery. And as was the custom on the plantation, he was sold at an early age and separated from his mother. He was moved 12 miles away. But most nights, his mom was still there to tuck him into bed. She would work the fields. Then she would hike 12 miles to see her son. And then she would hike back to get there before 6 a.m. or risk a beating. You see, a mother does whatever it takes. And this was Paul's love, his passion for the Thessalonians. Hey, I'll bet there are folks in your life who you have written off. Oh, they'll never come to Christ. Oh, their heart is so hard. God, she's so far out there, she can never be reached. I only want to ask you, have you loved that person the way that a mother loves her child? Have you loved that person the way that Paul loved the Thessalonians? I'd like to suggest if we deal with our own hard hearts, then maybe God will deal with their hard heart. Paul has one more illustration of his love for these believers. Verse 10. He says, You are witnesses in God also how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. He now brings up the picture of a father. And you know, I've learned firsthand, good dads and good pastors have a lot of similarities Paul preached like he would have parented. Dads lived a devoted life. They keep their commitments and they're, they're consistent with their convictions. They treat people fairly and justly to teach their kids how to treat people. And they avoid even the smell of sin. They weed out all the shady areas of their own lives so that there's nothing left in them for their kids to stumble over. And you see, this was how Paul interacted with the Thessalonians. He was a dad that these people could respect. No double standards, no hidden compromise. This is what makes for a good dad. The Thessalonians could look at Paul's life as a child should be able to look at their dad and say for certain, that's the right way to go. And notice the activity of a father in a child's life. What is a dad? Well, he's an example. 
But what does he do? Paul says he exhorts, comforts, charges. Now here's what this means. He exhorts or corrects. This involves spanking a kid's bottom. He comforts or encourages. This will include a pat on the child's back. Just a little higher up, but it makes all the difference. And he charges or challenges. Here's where you will see the dead taking his child by the hand and leading him forward. So here's where a dead should be. In his kid's face when he's wrong, by his kid's side when he's weak, and a step ahead of him when it's time to move. And this is also the job of a person like Paul, who's invested spiritually in the people around him. There are times when we need to correct folks. Other times when we need to encourage, and still other times when we need to challenge each other. Pastoring God's kids and parenting your kids go hand in hand. Well, once there was a native who shared his testimony with his missionary friend. And this is how he, how he framed it. He said it. He said, you built a bridge of love from your heart to my heart. And Jesus walked over. That's how it happened. Is there a person you know who's heard the gospel time and time again, yet has never received Maybe it's time for you to build a bridge. Be bold. You don't even have to say a word at first. Just build a bridge. And Jesus will walk 